Hello, welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky, and Stephen isn't going to be joining us until later today due to a holdup with the brand new house that he just bought. But on the line with me, I have Anthony Ag... I'm sorry, pronounce your last name? Anthony Aguirre. Anthony Aguirre. And Anthony, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm a professor of physics at UC Santa Cruz, and I'm also one of the founders of the Future of Life Institute, as well as one of the founders of Metaculus.com, which we'll be talking about today, I guess. Yes, you're here mainly to talk about Metaculus, but uh, briefly, I didn't realize that you were a uh, co-founder of the Future of Life Institute. Could you uh, mention, speak about that quickly as well? Yeah, so the, the Future of Life Institute started a few years ago, and uh, Metaculus was actually sort of a spinoff of that, because when we first started thinking about you know, this, this really big question of what does the long-term future hold in terms of these basic new technologies, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, <clears throat> old high-impact technologies like nuclear, and we were thinking, how do we find leverage points now where we can maybe nudge a little bit and steer things in a better direction? It occurred to me that, you know, what we really want to do is have a better way of predicting things. Um, I mean, we we make predictions all the time. The the idea that we can't predict the future is just sort of false. We do, we do it as a matter of course all the time in making pretty much every decision we make. Mm -hmm. And but we're used to making predictions about certain things, like if I pick this up, it will lift, and if I move my hand this way, it will move that thing over there. There there are all kinds of predictions that we just constantly make. And then when we have to make decisions, we we get a little bit more. <clears throat> it gets a little bit harder where we maybe plan out. Well, if I do this versus if I do that, what will happen with option A versus what will happen with option B? Then predicting what will happen in each of those cases, I might make a decision as to which outcome is sort of more favorable to my goals or to my happiness or whatever. Mm -hmm. But we're doing this all the time. And that's sort of how one has to make decisions, whether whether you like it or not. You're making predictions when you're making decisions. I think so. It you, seemed to me. I, th I think sorry, you used. Oh, oh yeah, I think you used the um, the phrase to me uh, before that, like human brains are little prediction making engines. That's what they do. That's that's a large part of what our brains do is just constantly create a, a predictive model of what's going on and then get some data, update our predictive model to make it more accurate. Uh, and then match that against what we would like, what our goals are, and translate those into decisions about what to do. And, you know, we register surprise in, in sort of exactly that way. When something fails to meet our predictive model, some new piece of data comes in that suddenly there's something that really doesn't fit in this environment. There's maybe a, a bear, you know, in an environment that we don't expect there to be one. We get very surprised, and then we try to make sense of that, and we notice, oh, that's not actually a bear. That's actually a bush that just is the shape of a bear and so on, or it's actually a bear, and we're extra surprised, and we suddenly have to take action. So this is a, a sort of process that's running in a human mind constantly, and we're very good at it. You know, We've evolved over billions of years, well, millions for humans, but billions for life to, to be able to do this sort of thing, um, but we're always frustrated because we can't do it quite well enough. Um, especially when we're making long-term decisions and those decisions are hard. So we can ask, what could we do you know, as a group or as a society or leveraging technologies that haven't existed in evolutionary history to do a better job of that, to make better decisions through making better predictions? Mm -hmm. So this is what I started to think about when we were starting the Future of Life Institute. What would it look like to be able to have better 
predictions, say, of how artificial intelligence is going to unfold or what are the most dangerous things that could happen in biotechnology or where is the where is a nuclear war most likely to start and by what chain of events. You'd really like to know these things in order to make nudges now. And, and there's sort of a a a staple of of you know science fiction if you could travel in time the the great power that you have obviously is that you know how the future is going to turn out and so you can go back and you think well if i just make this little nudge here i can change something with a huge amount of leverage and that's exactly right. the kind of leverage you would have if you could make great predictions we usually which don't have it yeah like everyone would always go back and kill hitler right that's the the thing that pops into mind but there there are lots of other things that you might you might try um with the benefit of hindsight, you know, and we always, so, so the question became, uh, you know, the, the future is hard to predict, but how hard exactly? And can we do better? And it seemed to me like, um, as with any skill, prediction is surely something that some people are better at than others. It's surely something that you can get better at. And it's surely something that when people work together at doing it, and are sort of gathered in an effective way so that they can collaborate and they can sort of uh, make a sort of community prediction. All of those things have got to be a better way of making predictions is just somebody sitting around, even if they're pretty good and have a model and so on. All of those have got to be better ways, uh, picking people who are good at predictions, training them and kind of getting them together. So, so that's sort of where the idea for this metaculous effort was born. And, and as I started to do research, I realized that that other people had thought of this at some level before. There were prediction markets um, where you use a sort of market approach to try to get to sort of aggregate people's predictions about things by just seeing what they will pay for a given contract that pays out depending on what happens in the future. Yeah. And there were efforts uh, to just get polls of people and say, okay, 50 people predict this thing and let's average them together and see what we get. Uh, so there was this fairly detailed body of, of work showing that um, those things that I had wondered about were, in fact, true. You know, you can find people that are good at predicting and it persists over time. You can train them and people get better at predicting. And when you aggregate lots of predictions, you tend to get something that is better than, you know, mo almost all of the individual predictors and reliably good. Okay, so Metaculus is a what a program or a a institution that does this? It's it's really a web platform, you know. It, it so it's a site that you can go to. Um, the way it's set up at the moment, there's a whole list of questions that are just some of them are important, interesting questions like when are we going to have artificial general intelligence? Some of them are. Uh, whose mind is in the red marble in Westworld. You know, there's a whole span of, of topics from, from kind of entertaining to quite serious uh, and all kinds of time spans from sort of a week to the longest term question we have currently is, will the universe end? Um, huh. So I, I have a hard time figuring out of a longer term question to make than that one, but, but I'll see. Out of curiosity, is there, what, what is the general consensus right now on whether the universe will end? Uh, it's, it's mixed. I think 70% last I checked, uh, were, were predicting that the universe would end. Okay. Um, and there's a, there's a precise meaning of end that I concocted for this question, uh, which is really about 
whether there are a finite or infinite number of computations that can be performed in the future light cone of Earth, okay. basically. Um, so, so I think, you know, this, of course, is not a question that you're going to answer or get points for uh, <laughs> at any point, but it is one that's just fun to think about and, and discuss and so on. So there, there's the whole gamut from things that are happening now to just long-term discussion questions uh, and everything in between. So that sounds like a, a survey, though, and I think you said that Metaculus is a prediction market? It's not quite a market. So, so the way a market works is uh, for, say, uh, will the Senate vote to keep net neutrality? That's a, the, a question on our that would just resolve yes. Um, so in a prediction market, you would have a contract that says, I'll pay you a dollar if the Senate votes to keep net neutrality and I'll pay you nothing if it votes not to, would you like, to, you know, what price will you pay for this contract? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so if you're willing to pay 70 cents, that basically means you think there's a 70% probability that th- that thing is going to happen. And then you can, you can trade that contract back and forth and find a fair market price for it. And the presumption being that if markets are efficient and everybody is using their utmost uh, to, to get the, you know, make the wisest purchase they can of these contracts that, that price will settle on the best estimate of the probability of that event happening. So that's a prediction market, and it it requires you know contracts, buyers and sellers, and at some level some kind of currency that you're buying and selling these contracts with. And some prediction markets use fake currency, some use real currency. You know you can there there are new ones coming out with cryptocurrencies, or you can use Bitcoin in some. Uh, they have a slight disadvantage in the U.S. that they're illegal. Um, <laughs> that is a both, problem. It's a slight problem. They're both illegal because the SEC considers them uh, unregulated trading of securities. You know, if these are these instruments that you're buying and selling are thought of as securities, and it runs afoul of online gambling laws um, because you really are getting paid depending on how some thing comes out. You know, that could be a random thing. Yeah. Um, so it falls afoul of both of those, and so. It, so the prediction markets that have real money have to be overseas, and it's a, it's a big pain for them. Okay, and you um, didn't not, want to go overseas. We didn't want to do that, and and it's not clear to me that the prediction market is actually the best mechanism for the kinds of questions we're interested in. So I think. Oh, why is that? Well, markets have their their strengths. Prediction markets, I think, have their strengths and weaknesses. I think they're going to be very strong where there's lots and lots of people interested in some high profile question, like who's going to be president next. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have lots of people who are interested and knowledgeable. um, And you have people who are, who have a monetary interest and might want to say hedge against one new president or the other, or the outcome of the Supreme court decision, right? You may have a business that stands to lose a lot of money. uh, If X comes out of the Supreme court, uh, so you might want to leverage. You might you might want to hedge against that by using a prediction market to get a, a large amount of money out if that happens, right? Just like any other hedge. So you can use it that way. Um, but what's very difficult for a prediction market is if you've got a question like um, a small one, will you know will Moore's law continue in this little bit or uh, will this patent accrue 17 citations or not, or will this scientific paper have some high impact? You're just not going to find a bunch of people who are willing to lay money on that and, and create a liquid market for it. Mm. What you might find 
are a few people with enough expertise to make a solid prediction about that thing. So, <clears throat> so a prediction market just doesn't have the liquidity in general to, to deal with these small questions that are sort of expert-based. It's also, I think, not clear to me um, what mechanism is the most accurate. I mean, there, there's, there are two mindsets, I think, and one is a sort of economic mindset that says, you know, it, if it's in people's financial interest, it's, it sort of has to be the most accurate because otherwise you could game the system and gain lots of money. And that's true if it's a liquid market. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another mindset, I think, and because I'm a, I'm a scientist, you know, I'm a research physicist, I tend to think of, um, a collaborative venture where lots of people are trying to find the truth as a sort of collaborative venture where lots of people are trying to find the truth (laughs) that that you want to design it sort of like our scientific process where there's some competition, but there's lots of cooperation as well. And there's an overall incentive where everybody wins if everybody gets it right, Mm -hmm. right? where a prediction market, there's always a winner and a loser. You're never, it's never in your interest to share information with other people, really. Because um, you're just giving them a an advantage that you might have. But if you're buying up a lot of a a certain outcome, uh, then that itself is information that people take into account. If someone suddenly throws down ten thousand dollars, on sure, yeah, sure, that's information. But what I mean is, you you can't give an argument. You it, there's no uh, there's no nothing to be gained by except if you're gaming the system by sharing your sort of deep knowledge of some situation with other people. You know what? You always want to have a knowledge asymmetry in your favor in a prediction market. But isn't that also true of of well? I mean, obviously, with the scientific method, people are motivated just for their desire for knowledge and for the truth. But if they weren't motivated by that, then they also have no incentive to share any information they may have. And so the the money would give them that incentive. Well, I think you can. Uh, the money flows in different ways. So so in a scientific field. Right. Somebody decides we want answers to, you know, we want valid, well-backed up, well-argued, testable answers to questions. And so we're going to put some money into effectively paying a whole bunch of people to figure out those answers. Um, and and so the incentives are aligned where the people want to work together at some level. You know, there may be some competition because they want to get more of that pot of money than the other guys. Um, but it, But the basic incentive is to take the money, do research, share the research, work collaboratively with people and and sort of find the truth, at, at least when it's working well. And often it does. Um, oh. the, the finances behind a prediction market are a little bit different in that it's people, the people who are making the predictions are subsidizing the market. Yeah. Right. So so they're they're betting against each other. It's, it's sort of a zero sum game or maybe a negative sum game. If the, if the market takes out some, some money or positive sum, if the market decides to put some money in, but the fundamental dynamic is really more like gambling. Uh, whereas a, whereas a scientific method, and this is what Metaculus is actually modeled after the idea would be to, to have some set of resources. So if there were a bunch of money that were being spent on Metaculus, there isn't, but if there were, what it would be used for is to subsidize the whole thing and, and effectively to pay people to make predictions in the same way that scientists are paid to do research and find out truths about facts. Now, this would be payment for high quality predictors to work hard and find out 
truths about the future, or at least probable truths. Okay. One one last follow-up question uh, before we get on to Metaculus then. Uh, and I will admit right up front that this is not my question. I was just reminded of it. Uh, Robin <laughs> Hansen originally asked something along these lines, but uh, see, seeing the way you just described the scientific process and how it uh, differs from a prediction market, what would you think about using a prediction market to uh, lay odds that a certain paper's result would be confirmed uh, in, in follow-up testing and deciding whether to publish in a paper based on the, the, that prediction market's results. Yeah, I think that would be super interesting. Uh, but I don't, but I think it, it would be super interesting whether it's a market or some other mechanism for predicting the success of a paper. Um, so we do this all the time at some level, you know, when I write a paper, I don't write a paper that I think is going to be boring and have no impact. I don't like to write a paper that I think is going to turn out to be untrue or falsified or something that's super embarrassing. Right. Um, and when I look at a paper, I think to myself, is this paper likely to be high impact and interesting and important? Then I might invest the time of hours or even days or weeks in some cases to read that paper and really understand it um, or not. So that's a prediction that I have to make. And it would certainly be lovely if I were looking at uh, a set of papers about, you know, esoteric physics questions. And there was a predicted probability of this being an interesting paper produced by a community of physicists. That would be super helpful. Right. I, would, I could then look at the, the ones that were likely to be high impact. And, of course, it'd be all kinds of gaming and stuff that went on in that system if we were to devise it. But but it would certainly be much, much more helpful to look at that set of papers with probabilities for them being great next to them than just a list of titles, which is what we have now. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think it would be great. Um, I think there's another sense that, you know, Robin, and, and this is true of prediction markets in general, it's a mechanism for sort of putting your money where your mouth is. Um, you know, when you ask somebody, well, what do you think is going to happen? And they say, well, this is going to happen 99% sure. And then you ask them, okay, here's a dollar. Will you pay me $99 if it doesn't happen? Suddenly that $99, that 99% tends to, you know, <laughs> come down a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I think it's certainly true that betting is a, is an interesting way to, to help people recalibrate their probabilities when they suddenly think about, well, what, am I really that sure? Um, and I think something similar could happen in prediction markets in general and for, for scientific ones if people were putting money on the line. So I think it might have some additional benefit there. But but yes, I think I think there are lots of things where we should be using the power of uh, well calibrated aggregate predictions to sort of label things much more usefully than we do now, because we're doing it all the time anyway ourselves, just not very well. Yeah. So um, how does Metaculus differ from a, a prediction market then? So the way Metaculus works is it's essentially, uh, so it's a list of questions. You go in, you see a question like, um, will SpaceX land people on Mars prior to 2030? That's one that I'm looking at right now. Mm -hmm. um, and you say, okay, what probability am I going to attribute to that? Um, and you might think through, well, what are the different things that have to happen for SpaceX to do that and so on? What are the timetables? How long is it going to take? So you come up with a probability, you put it in, you can then come back and update that probability as time goes on. And then at some point, 
that event either occurs or not. 2030 is a little bit far off, but there, as I said, there are lots of shorter term questions. So then when the question comes out, either yes or no, you get a, you get points. Um, so these are just sort of reputation points based on how accurate your prediction was. So if you predict 99% and it happens, you get lots of points. If you predict 1% and it happens, you lose very badly, <laughs> uh, and so on. So, so this is a feedback system that sort of rewards and punishes you depending on how well you do and also how well calibrated you are. Um, so it, you, you, you know, you quickly learn not to give 1% probability to something unless you're really quite sure it's not going to happen and so forth. Now what's, so then what happens is after a while you start to accrue a track record, right? Each predictor starts to accrue a track record. Mm -hmm. And so when we have this question about SpaceX landing on Mars, um, there are 1,120 predictions on that question. Um, the, the median prediction for all those 1,120 people, at least of the fairly recent ones, is 83%. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, this is probably way too high. And the reason it's probably way too high is that a bunch of people who are real fans of SpaceX came and made predictions on this question, and they really wanted to succeed. And I don't blame them, but 83% is probably really high. But if you look at the prediction that is based on people who have a strong predictive track record in the past that have just gotten lots of questions right in the past, the prediction is 39%. I'll tell oh. you now. So, so this is a, this is kind of secret information, but, if, but the listeners of this podcast can now go and, and they have the, <laughs> the inside, they have the inside number, uh, 39%. So much lower, right? So and, on the back end, there's a weighting, uh, of, of the, I guess the predictions based on what your track record was in the past. Exactly. So, so it, it actually does two things at the moment. One is just waiting on how accurate people were in the past. And the other is recalibrating people based on how each individual. So each individual will build up a record of, you know, of the questions that I said 70% were like 70% likelihood for what fraction of them actually happened. You know, mm -hmm. most people at the high end are, overconfident, meaning that most people, when they say something is, say, 95% likely, it's actually more like 80 or 85% likely to happen. Um, but once you have enough statistics, you can then adjust for this. So when I plug in my prediction of, say, 70% to Metaculus at this point, it immediately knows that what I really mean is 60% or something like that. Uh, and it does that for everybody who's got a track record. Huh. And then it takes those recalibrated numbers and weights them by how well people do and then produces this aggregate prediction. And the recalibration is unique to each person based on their track record? That's right. Neat. Yeah. Um, now, it's sort of tricky because if you, uh, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of attention in that if you're continually doing Metaculous and taking it seriously and getting better and sort of trying to fix your own calibration, then Metaculous may over-recalibrate you for a while or something like that. But but eventually it should even out. Um, so it's cool to see. It's it and it's it's interesting to it's an interesting piece of self knowledge that now when I make a prediction of Metaculus, I can I can watch it tell me what I actually mean. Yeah. Um, it's it's a little bit sobering huh. uh, when I think no no I really do mean that that's fifty percent likely and it says no no forty. <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. Huh. That's, this is kind so, of neat because uh, as rationalists often you know we talk about 
of prediction games and how to recalibrate ourselves. And it takes a bit of effort. And Metaculous almost sounds like it would help track that stuff for you. Can you look up your own record? You can. So so you can. It it keeps a record of all your predictions as well as the aggregate predictions for the whole platform. And you can just look, and it gives you a little calibration plot um, that you can see what your calibration is based on the questions that you've answered. Um, and it would give you breakdowns like of the ones that I guess seventy percent, uh, actually sixty two percent of them were correct. That's right. Neat. Yeah. Uh, so it's a so what I've found. So now we've been doing this for a couple years, and 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 so we have enough sort of data and and enough users, although we can always use lots more, to to start to see statistics and things. And so a few things I would say have become clear. One is that. Um, essentially the things that I mentioned earlier that, that some people really are good at this. You know, there are people who just keep getting them right. Um, and it's not clear that they do lots more work. Uh, they're just better at it. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, and there are people that I know who are quite smart and really good at lots of things, but not particularly great at making well calibrated predictions. <laughs> I think I would be in that <laughs> camp. <laughs> this is just how it is. You know, I'm, Decent, I found, but but not at all as good as some of the best people. Yeah. Um, it's also clear that doing it trains you to think, you know, in calibrated predictions. And so when people ask me now, you know, do you think this is going to happen? Probability just pops into my head. I can't help it. You know, <laughs> I, spent, I spent enough time on the system uh, that I'll tell them, you know, 73% and they kind of laugh. Oh, um, but I'm serious. Yeah. Um, How much time do you spend on the system? Is it like an hour every day or more? Probably less than that. Um, and I actually don't take care to make predictions about everything. But but I, I like to keep an eye on what's going on. Look for I like to think of new questions to put up there because that's really fun. Uh, keep an eye on what the community is doing, what the predictions are and things that I care about. So so like any user, except that I uh, I probably produce more questions and kind of keep an eye on things more than most users would. Oh, can any user submit a question? They can. Yeah. So, so if, if someone has a nice well-formed question that they submit, it will probably just go live. Um, if it's kind of just an idea or a kind of mess of a question, we'll try to find someone who will, you know, a moderator who will turn, whip it into shape. The, the, one of the things that becomes clear after writing and editing questions is uh, it's quite hard to write precise questions that really will, you know, turn out to be true or false. You know, you've got to make them precise enough. You've got to have a data source, you know, to compare to that, you know, is going to exist when the question resolves. Uh, you've got to think through what are the ways that things could go wrong or just different than we're thinking such that this question wouldn't have a clear answer to it. Um, and this happens all the time, um, you find. And, and so, for example, um, you know, we had a question of whether uh, Trump would try to fire Mueller, mm. right? And the period went by and Trump hadn't tried to fire Mueller. Um, so it resolved no. But then it turns out that Trump had tried to fire Mueller, but then didn't succeed, right? He, he told, you know, the, the legal counsel said he would quit if he tried to file him. So, yeah. so does that count or not? So fortunately, the way we had written the question was such that it didn't really matter. But that was the kind of thing that happens all the time, that 
that there's just some way that things can turn out that isn't either the yes or no that you specified in the question. So you get really good at specifying the question clearly enough that it's really going to be one or the other. And and that in itself is a learning experience to sort of think through, well, what are the, what are all the ways that sort of things could pan out? Mm-hmm. Um, and what it really teaches you that when somebody asks you, you know, is this going to happen? You know, where there's like a default, there's a baseline, and then there's the this, which is something different from the baseline. Uh, the answer to that question is probably not. Okay. <laughs> Whatever that thing is, because it's it's almost always less likely than you think it's going to be. Oh. Uh, there's almost always the the thing that you've called sort of the, the positive outcome almost always has various ways to to uh, go wrong. You know, if you ask, will SpaceX land people on Mars prior to 2030? There are just so many things that can go wrong in that. SpaceX can go out of business. Uh, it can end up happening in 2031. Uh, you know, SpaceX turns into another company. Yeah. Uh, the government could say it's too risky to let humans go off the planet. Yes. The SpaceX launches the mission and they're on their way and the humans die because they're mm-hmm. in space with radiation that they didn't, you know. So so there's so many ways that something like that can go wrong. Um, so thinking through those is a really useful exercise to do. And, and you just get you get better and better at that with practice, I would say. So how does anything ever happen? <laughs> well, so, something's always got to happen. Uh, <laughs> but. But when you name the thing beforehand, you know, then you often forget all the different ways that it cannot happen. It's really Murphy's Law, right? Okay. There are lots and lots of ways that the world could be. You pick a tiny number of them and say, this is the way I, this is the way I would like it to be, um, or this is the way I think it's going to be. And then you shouldn't be too surprised when that goes awry because, <laughs> because you picked a tiny fraction of the things that, that could happen. You know, and, and it's a testament to our capability as as predictive and effective agents that, you know, anything good happens at all. Right. <laughs> the world is just working against you all the time. The phase space of the universe is just immense. And if you just meander around, you're going to make a mess. Um, so it's a lot of effort to make things happen the way you want them to happen and to happen favorably. And, you know, that's what we're about. That's what we've spent millions of years evolving in order to do and thousands of years evolving society and technology in order to do is to to fight against Murphy's law in some sense. And and so that's sort of what the idea is here, too, that as we understand what are the different pathways forward, how do we avoid that huge face space of unfavorable possibilities and, and hone in on the good ones? God, that I really that sounds very noble to me. I like to think of myself as an agent for anti chaos in the universe. Oh, you totally are. I mean, that's what living <laughs> systems are in general. Yeah. We work very hard um, to to prevent entropy from increasing in our local environments um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a major way, or at least at least in our bodies. Um, yeah. And and we work very hard to pick goals that we have for reasons that are you know known and, and decided by us, mm-hmm. and make those happen. It's 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 quite amazing that we can. So I have two questions about Metaculus then. Uh, I guess the first one would be, what do you do with all this data that you get? Like, what, what is what is the, 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 the point, point of knowing <laughs> that there's a 37% chance that uh, 
that or people think there's a 37% chance that we'll land people on Mars. Yeah. I I would say there are three real purposes. Um, One is to provide the sort of training that that you get when you use it. So it's sort of, you know, it's it's sort of like an educational exercise that people who use the site for a long time just get better at doing this. And so it's a it's a sort of training system for getting people better at making accurate, well calibrated predictions and thinking clearly about future events. So I think that's uh, that's one positive thing that comes out of it. I think a second thing is that uh, it is a way to figure out which people are really good at making predictions. Right. So so we now have lots of people with a real unimpeachable track record, positive or negative, about how they do it predicting things. And this is not something you can fake, right? Mm-hmm. This is, there's no, uh, you can have all the degrees you want, but if your points are negative, <laughs> your points are negative, you're not good at predicting stuff. So it's an amazingly clean sort of reputation system or, or sort of authority granting system for people who are just good at what they do. And, and when you think about it, um, making predictions is at some level a very basic source of why we believe or trust some people and not others, right? Why do you really, why do you think science, say, say physics or electrical engineering or biochemistry is given the accord in society that it is? It's because the iPhone works, you know, the electromagnetic waves carry the signal from one place to another. The, you know, the, the rules that are, created in those fields are rules that are basically for making predictions about what some physical system will do. Mm-hmm. And the, those enterprises have reputation because those predictions work. And I think it's, it's similar in if you ask uh, two experts, well, what do you think is good? You know, what do you think is the better way to do this? Or, or what do you think happened in the circumstance? Or what do you think is the, the better choice for what policy to use? Um, they're going to give you different arguments and they're both going to sound pretty convincing. But if one of them really has a track record of actually getting things right in the past, that's going to weigh tremendously. Right. So if, if you've got someone who has, you know, done many different ventures, say, say they're business ventures or some other sort of ventures and been successful at them. And another person who just hasn't, they've kind of failed over and over again. And you ask each of them to make a prediction about something, who are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to the one who succeeded over and over again because they effectively, you know, predict the future and, and they have, you have a degree of trust in them. So I think there's, there's a huge utility in having a system that can generate a, a real grounding of trust in particular people or groups of people or processes that make accurate predictions again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of the goal is to say, okay, we've got this system that you can rely on. And here's why you can rely on it because it's done this in the past. Here's how well you can rely on it, right? You can, uh, you can look at questions that are like this that have, uh, been given an 80% chance of happening, say, and see that in the past, 80% of those things have happened, right? Whereas if you just go to some expert, uh, at a consulting firm and they, you know, run the numbers and tell you 80%, what are you going to do with that number exactly? Do you trust that 80%? Uh, I don't know. 
Um, I would want to, if I were to trust an 80% number from someone, say, well, what is that based on? What's your model? What's the ensemble that is 80% of what and so on? So I think that's the, the second goal is to really identify who are the really good predictors and create a sort of reputation system for the predictors and for the, the platform and the aggregate prediction as a whole um, that can provide a source of kind of authority and sort of trusted uh, insights into things. And then I'd say the third goal is just to actually generate predictions about things. So um, to see, for example, for artificial intelligence, what sorts of timeframes should we really be thinking about in uh, for different levels of capability for robotics? What probability should we be thinking about in terms of autonomous weapons or uh, artificial general intelligence or passing the Turing test or, you know, artificially generated fake news? There are all kinds of things that are coming, right? And, and we don't know when exactly. Nobody knows when. Mm-hmm. But the question is, what is the best level of estimate that we can get? And I think knowing to the degree that we can have confidence and answers about those questions, you can really take action based on that. So, so if I feel like, um, if I feel like there's a, you know, 20% chance that artificial general intelligence is coming within five years, that's a huge piece of information for me. If I think that chance is 0% or or 0.001%, then that's a different piece of information that really would affect what I, you know, as with my hat of the Future of Life Institute, who worries about this, would do, right? Now, to to enable for this to become useful, it does have to have the trust of the, I don't know, greater community. And it seems for to, to gain that trust, you need to be do something very public uh, correctly. Like I think, uh, what was it? Nate Silver from 528 uh, made a almost 100 or was it 100% spot on prediction, which is what got him all the, the attention and people started listening to him. I don't remember what the uh-huh. prediction was now. It was one of the presidential races where he called every state. Uh, is is there any effort yet to do something large and showy like that to demonstrate the uh, power of Metaculus? It's a good question. Um I'm of two minds about it in, in that at some level, I think it, it should be and has to be the aggregate track record that you really look at to trust. Otherwise, so, so there, uh, one can imagine, one doesn't have to imagine because it actually happens, but one can imagine someone who makes predictions regularly and then, and they make very bold predictions, right? Mm-hmm. But somewhat quietly. And then when they get them right, they file them all in a big file. And then after a couple of years, they have this huge file of amazing, bold, correct predictions, right? Because they've just cherry picked the ones that came out right. And that's something you can certainly do. And it looks very impressive, but carries zero information or utility. So, so I, I'm a little bit worried about looking for a big bang, you know, here's our bold prediction about things. And this is why you should listen to us. Because I don't think that's really the right metric. I think the right metric is that you actually, over time, get it right lots of times, right? And you get it right in the right amount of times. You you get 90% of the things right that you say 90% to, and you get 50% right of the things that you say 50% to. Um, and as you get better, you might 
have more and more things that you say 10% or 90% to that, that level of precision is very useful. Um, but but I'm, I'm a little bit leery of kind of making big, bold predictions that are contrary to what everybody thinks and getting them right, because you won't do that very often and you'll just be cherry picking. But even if you were going with uh, the the more aggregate over time method, you still need some way to publicize, look, these are our predictions and this is our track record and it's really good and it's continuing to be good. It yes. seems like, yeah, you need to get people to know. That's absolutely true. And and that's something we need to figure out how to do well. The, the hard part at some level is that the right way to assess track records using prior scores or calibration plots or whatever most people's eyes glaze over you know there's mm-hmm. a there's a particular small set of people perhaps some of the audience of this podcast who really like those things right are gonna and are gonna be like what's your briar score that's exciting <laughs> um but the you know the general public is not gonna know what a briar score is or care when you explain it so you have to you know we will need to come up with metrics that convey that information in a way that's more understandable and impressive um, and or immediately un, sort of uh, imbibable in some way that, that doesn't require the level of care and finesse that the real track record does. So so anybody can look at, at the actual track record of Metaculus. Um, it's all public, um, which is something you also won't find almost anywhere else, right? Just all the public predictions that something makes, people don't do that for exactly for the reason, because it's embarrassing when you get it wrong. But well, that's, I know a know, few people that do it, but yeah. In general, people. you don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and and those people are certainly to be commended, and and it's a it's a great example. Um, and we, you know, very much want to follow that and encourage it because, you know, there's it's interesting when you first start to make predictions, it's very uncomfortable in a way, mm-hmm. right? You're really putting yourself on the line. Um, you you dial out dial the ninety percent, and and you're you're feeling like, really, I, I don't really know this. I, I, you know, I don't have expertise in this. What do I know? How, how can I put 90%? And then if you get it wrong, it's kind of embarrassing. But, but once you get over that and you feel like, okay, you know, I'm just going to make predictions and see how they come out. And, and if I get them wrong, I get them wrong, but I'm learning. So if you, once you sort of do it enough to attain a good attitude about it, um, then you can really make progress and f- just feel self-honest. You know, you can just own up to where you screwed up um, and and feel good about the ones that you got right. And and it's been really nice to see the the caliber of the of the users of Metaculus really getting to that point where, where people will just say, like, boy, I really screwed that one up. You know, I gave that one percent and it totally happened and so on. Mm-hmm. There's just a, a feeling of honesty about it that is a little bit all too rare you know, in, in current online settings or, or, you know, in culture in general. Yeah. So what do the users get out of uh, Metaculus? I mean, obviously the training with calibration and it sounds like it's fun, but without uh, the money incentive, is there, are you worried about missing a certain amount of people or is there something else that draws them in? I am. I am. So we actually did a survey recently uh, to ask, you know, what it is that people use the platform for, like why, what's important to them. And it was those things uh, people liked just seeing interesting, fun questions and thinking about them. That was probably the top thing, actually. Um, people liked getting to be a better predictor. They liked finding out what other people and the platform as a whole predicted about things. So having a kind of 
inside knowledge of what's going to happen better than other people have. Um, and they, you know, we asked about money and most people rated that relatively low. Now that may be because we haven't given anybody any money so far other than one, you know, we ran one contest where the prize was one ether. Um, so, so we, so we basically haven't given any money. So the people who are still around are kind of not the ones who are super money motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there are a fair number of people who will do it without that motivation. I think it would be really interesting to see what would change and how many people would, what would happen if we did start supplying money. So that's certainly something that we're thinking about, um, whether it be prizes or ultimately we would like, uh, as, I, as I sort of alluded to earlier, to create a system where if you're someone, say you're a company, and you really want to know how is this Supreme Court decision going to come out or, or how on time is, is the next Tesla model going to be or how successful is uh, this medical trial going to be, you know, if that's really important information to you and you would like to have a quantitative assessment of it, that this is a place where you could go and you could plunk down some money and say, I really want to know the answer to this and I'm willing to pay X dollars to get a really good answer to this. And then that money can be offered to high quality predictors who have accrued a good track record on questions like that to incentivize them to spend time and effort thinking about that particular question and making a good prediction about it. So that's really the the platform that I would like to see eventually happen where, where people who need predictions can, if they have the means, pay for really good predictions and people who are really good at making predictions and have accrued that tracker can be paid for doing that. Um, and I think that's a system that could, could work in principle. How would a uh, calibration estimate work with that? Because if someone gives, uh, like, a, say, 70% chance that something will happen, I mean, either it does or it doesn't. So what is their incentive to say 70% as opposed to 90% if uh, there's, like, it's a one-off question? Uh, yeah, so, so they would not be paid depending on how the question turns out in this model because that would be gambling. So that's like a prediction market. What they would be paid for is the fact that they've accrued lots of expertise and that they're making a prediction on this question. So it's, so it's, it would be kind of like a, a micro consultancy, right? Where you say, I want to hire a consultant to make a prediction about this question for me. I would like a consultant, please, who has done really well at predicting things like this in the past. Here's the money and they will give me their prediction. And but the would... money doesn't depend on whether they get it right or not. Okay. The next, the, what, what the, the, but they care about getting it right because they want to keep their good reputation. They want to keep their points. They want to keep getting consultant contracts in the future effectively. Yeah. So they need to keep their track record accurate. Okay. So that's what you were, uh, you briefly mentioned at the beginning that if you had more money coming in, that this is the sort of thing that you would do with it. Yeah. That's, that's how I see it ultimately being a sort of self sustaining effort that could grow big. Um, if it could be supported in that way, you know, I, I don't have a big interest in having lots of people in the running ads and things like that to, to keep this going. So I think it, it would have to be, uh, at some level that, that people feel like it's valuable to have predictions in general or particular predictions and that that subsidizes the, the effort as a whole. How's it supported right now? Is it just, uh, work on your part? Well, it's, it's a, a lot of, uh, just time donated essentially uh, there we have had, we have raised some money um, and we have, we've sort of have some small contracts that are essentially with, with nonprofits to do, 
you know, that are it's at some level philanthropic, right? Places mm-hmm. that would like to you know answers to things, but also would just like to support the general effort. Um, but it's a little bit on a shoestring, and and we've been thinking about do we want to make a serious effort to raise you know venture funds for it or or something like that, uh, which we probably should do. But it's a lot more fun to just come up with cool <laughs> questions and technologies. You said this was originally for the Future of Life Institute to help you make decisions. Have you used it yet for anything, any decision making? A little bit here and there. So it, so it definitely is informing, I think, my views in terms of artificial intelligence, in terms of biotechnology. Um, we we ran a little question thinking about uh, we, we were thinking about where our next conference would be and uh, we were debating Puerto Rico. We did a conference in Puerto Rico. The second time Puerto Rico was uh, in this major Zika issue. And, and so we, we made some, we, we ran some questions about how widespread Zika would be in Puerto Rico and things like that, that sort of in, helped inform those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a little bit, but I think it still has a ways to go. There are capabilities I think that we need to build and we just need to have lots more people do it. Um, so that the whole effort is bigger, more questions, more more connections between questions. So, so one of the things that I think is going to be most interesting and is sort of on the docket very soon is to create connections between questions. So to say, um, given that the BFR gets tested, this is uh, the next big rocket that, that Elon Musk wants to make in space. Like, given that the BFR gets tested by 2020, will SpaceX land people on Mars prior to 2030, right? So, so clearly the probability will be higher if the BFR gets tested early than it will be if it doesn't get tested early. Mm. So you can, you can make answers to some things contingent on answers to other things. And once you create enough connections like that between questions, then you can create a whole network, a Bayes network or a fault tree or a, an event tree and, these, these probability structures that tie together the different questions in various interesting ways. And I think once we have that sort of technology and the ability to kind of dissect big questions into lots of little ones, then things are going to get even more interesting, right? So you can ask things like, so when you ask something like, uh, will there be a nuclear event, you know, that is not a test that happens by 2020, Right. That's a question I would like to know the answer to. Um, I'd like to know whether that's one percent or ten percent or point one percent. But it's a lot of effort to figure out the answer to that question, because you've got to think through what are all the different ways that that could happen. You know, right now you immediately start thinking of North Korea. But of course, there could be Iran. There could be accidents. There's all kinds of other things that could happen. You've got to think through each one. And kind of dissect that question into the different ways that a nuclear uh, explosion could happen. For each one, what would have to happen? For each one of those things that has to happen, what would have to happen? And so you can build a whole tree. And this is something that's done, you know, in in risk analysis. Um, but having a system that can crowdsource building that tree and crowdsource putting the probabilities into all the nodes in that tree and the connections between them make something I think that's really, really powerful and that just doesn't exist right now. Um, other than maybe if you've got, you know, Rand or something planning nuclear wars, you've got something like this going on, but maybe even then you don't. Um, I think that will be a, a new thing that will really start to inform decisions um, because then you can also think, 
okay, well, if I tweak this thing at the bottom of the tree, how does that affect the things up the tree? Right. So you can right. look for leverage points in there. If you want to decrease the chance of a nuclear missile, where are the things that you, that if you dialed them down or dialed them up would have the biggest effect on that? Oh. Right? When you understand that whole network, then you can start to look for those things. And there, those are your leverage points. Yeah. I do... I do always get a bit worried whenever I hear the term crowdsource because crowdsourcing seems to always depend a lot on the enthusiasm of people for a project and that tends to wane over years. Do you think yeah. do you think this is going to be hard to scale up for to a large amount of people and for a long period of time? It may. I guess we'll see. I mean I, I think um I don't like the term crowdsource either because uh I prefer aggregation of expert or something like that because mm -hmm. i think it's at some level part of the whole point is to to identify the people who are really good and kind of neglect the rest of the crowd even if they don't know they're being neglected <laughs> um you know to to keep them from everybody but to hone in on who are the people who actually know what they're doing and to combine them in some you know careful algorithmic way um so i you know, I've struggled a bit with what is the right name for what this thing is doing, because um, it's not a prediction market. I don't like crowdsourced predictions because it just sounds like a bunch of people, you know, milling around a, a bowl of jelly beans and guessing different numbers and averaging them together, which works, by the way. But that's not exactly what we, yeah. <laughs> um, what we want to do. Um, prediction engine, maybe, or or uh, prediction aggregation platform. So, so the, the so function of the, the function of the masses then would be mainly to uh, to keep making predictions, so you could find the ones that are the people that are really good at this and mainly focus on them. And I guess that would be yeah. the the purpose of like anyone who joins in this is to try to become one of those people that's really good at predicting. So you could make the consultation fees. Yes, and and I think. Obviously, if you have a crowd of experts, that that's actually quite powerful, yeah. right? Just a, a random crowd is not so great, but if you have a crowd of experts that are organized in some way, you can get you can get a whole lot done. So, so if you get a big enough crowd, then even one percent of the you know the sort of most effective one percent of that crowd can still be a crowd, and then you've really got something. So, and it's also true that uh, the more people are doing it, the more people just benefit from both the fun and the training, right? Mm. I think if if more people in society could could literally just sort of understand what probability was, let alone be able to, you know, assign accurate, well-calibrated probabilities to things, yeah. boy, that would change things, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if I, could, if I could force just everybody in government to spend, you know, 50 hours on Metaculus, I think... Boy, would the world be different. Oh, man. Uh, I was just a month, two months ago, I was speaking with an English professor, and uh, this particular English professor is very big into astrology, I guess. And uh, we were talking about, well, the statistic, prison statistics uh, came up, and she, she was like, yeah, they absolutely guarantee you 99% sure that this percentage of the prisoners are going to be like this sign, right? I said, okay, how much are you willing to bet on that? And she was like, uh 20 bucks it's <laughs> like are you kidding me 99 percent sure and you're willing to bet 20 freaking bucks that's not 99 percent yeah yeah so so it um so, i yeah, think it, it, it it's, this, is a, this is a thing that would be good for the rest of the population to actually think about 
And we make decisions all the time, right, that that simply don't make sense if you just have even the barest grasp of the probabilities and the numbers and how to multiply one by the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes there are reasons we make decisions as a society that, you know, we, we knowingly disregard the numbers at some level. You know, we spend vast amounts of money preventing a relatively small number of terrorist attacks versus, you know, car accidents. And this is something we choose to do. I think, you know, at some level, people understand that they're much more likely to die in a car accident than a terrorist attack. But but one of them is so much worse in their mind than the other that they just attribute a lot more importance to it. Um, or they, you know, some people just don't know that. Um, so that happens also. Or we decide or, you know, we have human feelings that say when someone is deliberately attacking us, that's something that is just more important to meet and prevent than something that is accidental. Yeah. You know, you you you're dead in each case. Um, so, so we have lots of things that come into making decisions, but even when you sort of agree on this, this is, you know, cause a of accidental death and this is cause B of accidental death. They're both equally horrifying. And it's obvious that this amount of dollars would be vastly more effective in this side than this side. We still don't do it, right? Because people, it's just not the way that we tend to make decisions uh, because people aren't thinking that way as much as they should. So, you, you said that yes. uh, so far I've heard uh, the questions mentioned technical advancements and political events and entertainment, uh, popular entertainment. Are there any subjects that are not on the table or is this like free for anything that anyone wants to ask? In principle, it's free for anything. It, we focus mostly on sort of science and technology things because uh, and a little bit on geopolitics and politics, but partly because that's our relative advantage. You know, the, the founders are pretty much all like physicists and scientists mm-hmm. um, and the connection with Future of Life Institute and, and the sort of effective altruism community is thinking primarily about technologies and, and a little bit geopolitics and things like that. Um, it's, you know, there are also things like sports uh, where both, you know, it's not a relative advantage and there are plenty of solutions out there. If you, you know, if you want to bet on sports, there are lots of people who will take your money and give you odds and all those things. Yeah. So there's just, there's no point in competing with that. Um, there's probably not much of a point in competing on the front of who's going to win the presidency in 2020, because there's a whole system of Nate Silvers and many others mm-hmm. doing polls and aggregating them well and all that stuff. And if you put a question up on Metapolis about that, the smart people will just copy over, cut, cut and paste from <laughs> 538.com into Metaculus, and that's like the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, so, so where I see, so I see the relative advantage being <clears throat> more technical, more obscure things, where there's just a higher level of kind of depth of understanding that's necessary to really make good predictions about it. Um, so that tends to be where we where we focus, and and just also on the stuff that we think is cool and fun. Um, and and timely, you know, there we had a we had a series of questions on cryptocurrencies, right? On the mm. so that's another one technical side. Uh, I'm looking at one on whether nuclear fusion will first be developed in China. Um, so I would love to get an arms race started in nuclear fusion between the <laughs> between the Chinese and the Americans. Um, <clears throat> so there are some things where where I would I really don't want to see arms races or yeah. just races. Uh, but if we could get China and the U.S. competing to develop nuclear fusion first, I'd be a happy camper. Um, 
I was. I, I don't unfortunately think Metaculus quite has the reach to to uh, to encourage that at the moment. Yeah. What would you think of an academic department using this sort of tool, or let, let's say Metaculus specifically, weighted for just the the best predictors? Uh, using that to make their decisions on which uh, which people to hire based on the estimate of their future publications records. Yeah. So I think at some level, this is what, you know, hiring committees are doing anyway, again, individually and imperfectly in their mind. There might be some better way to do it. I think a first step could possibly be just causing people to more consciously and, and sort of uh, quantitatively think about some of these questions. So, so for example, one of the things that I'm involved with is giving grants to people through a couple of different organizations I'm involved with um, where we have money from somewhere and want to give it out as research grants to some group of people. So, so we'll generally have a panel that comes in and, reads all the proposals and then makes decisions based on their relative merits of how we're going to allocate this pot of money. Um, so the future of life Institute, for example, is doing this right now with proposals on artificial intelligence safety. Mm-hmm. And in one of these panels, the, the last time that I did one, this was not for future of life, but another organization. Um, I asked the reviewers to explicitly write, okay, what are three things that this proposal is trying to accomplish what is the probability of them succeeding? You know, for each one of these things, what is the probability of them succeeding? And what would the impact in the field be if they were to succeed on kind of a logarithmic scale from, from negligible to earth shattering, right? One to 10, maybe. Um, And we, we then kind of ran the numbers uh, and we didn't, actually use those numbers to make decisions, but but we kind of displayed them next to to the sort of decisions that they had come to separately. And it was interesting to see that sometimes there were, those were very much in accord and sometimes they were quite different. So people were clearly making decisions on grants that were rather at odds with their assessment of probabilities times impacts, right? Even though, you know, our stated criterion was we want to maximize the expectation value of impact per dollar, right? That, that's kind of what we said we want to do in the effective altruism or just mm-hmm. effective anything spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and nonetheless, you know, decisions were sometimes quite at odds with that. And I'm not sure that I would want a system that just put all the numbers in and then gave out the money according to a, an algorithm. Um, but I think it's very instructive to have people explicitly think about those things and to then look back at what they explicitly said and what other people explicitly said about that in comparison to the decision that they're actually making. So I'm, I'm not sure that I'd be in favor of just pumping every faculty member's numbers into a, into an algorithm. And it says you hire this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that would be an okay system, but I, I, I think it would be too big of a jump from what we have now, even if it were a good idea. Uh, but I do think, a little bit more explicit thinking, what is it that we're actually trying to hire? Is there a way to quantify that in some way? And if there is, or to the extent that there is, let's make predictions about what those quantities are going to be, would be an interesting exercise. And, and I, I think what it would probably actually lead to is the realization that you don't quite know how to quantify what you're trying to hire. Um, we don't just really want to 
want to hire the person who publishes the most papers. Um, that can be lots of crappy papers. <laughs> we don't true. necessarily want to just hire the person who uh, has the most citations because then that might just be in a field where every paper happens to have much more citations than in some other field, which is also a super interesting and important field, but there are just fewer people working in it and fewer citations per paper on average. Right. So, so you have to think carefully about what you're trying to incentivize and do you care about teaching? Do you care about, uh, bringing in money to the university? Do you, so, so there are all different things that, that faculty are responsible for and get hired to do. If you were to come up with a sort of quantitative way of assessing all those things, um, which doesn't exist, I can tell you from being, you know, yeah. uh, hiring and, and promoting and being promoted in lots of ways in, in different academic settings. Um, if you were to come up with that, then you could start making predictions about it. But I, I think what you would find is that, as is generally the case, you'd have a hard time writing down what you, it was you were trying to predict. And once you set that metric, of course, people would start gaming to satisfy that metric rather than some other thing that you really have in mind, which is just generally being an awesome researcher and teacher and everything else. Okay. So what is the uh, future for Metaculus? Well, it's an interesting question. We're, there's a there's apparently a 5% chance that we'll do an initial coin offering. Oh, neat. Uh, <laughs> uh, we put a question up about that. Um, so it's 5%. Yeah. Um, we haven't dared to put a question up. Oh, we, there is a, a high chance that Metaculus will still exist in 2030 or something. Huh? Uh, we ha recently had a question about that. Um, so its 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 future is bright in terms of length. Um, I think, really, you know, more seriously, I think we, as I said, we we need to actually bring in some real resources to it. So either raise some venture funding or do a coin offering or something or uh, or some means get enough resources in to really expand the effort into something that will have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of users rather than thousands. Um, but I think we're sort of ready to do that. The platform is mature. The technology is there. There's a couple more major pieces that I think we need to put in. Um, but I think at some level, we just now want to grow in terms of how many people are making questions, how many people are answering questions, the range and specificity of questions and so on. I think it it's pretty much ready to scale. Um, and I think that it will, um, you know, I'm pretty optimistic because I, I think society is really thirsting at some level for um, any source of, you know, authority that it can actually rely on, or at least some segments, you know, there, there's certainly some segments of society that just want to undermine everything. Mm. Um, but, but I think there's a real need for actual quality information that you feel like you have a reason to trust. Um, and I think that will, that need will only grow. And I think as more people see that need and as more technologies, you know, machine learning and things get, get built into this, there, there are lots of ways that I can see this, uh, idea expanding into some, actually quite important and major force for making better decisions in society as a whole, a general purpose thing. You know, if I'm super ambitious, like, you know, Wikipedia or, or something like that, where it's genuinely of huge utility to lots of people, takes a lot of effort to keep it going. Um, 
some money, but not a huge amount of money, but is just vastly useful to a large number of people in doing things well. And, and if we can make something that serves any fraction of that amount of utility and good, I'll be, I'll, I'll be super excited. Nice. Well, uh, is there, I think we're getting close to the end. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention that maybe I haven't asked about? No, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I do have a question from Robin because I, I have his email and I just asked him, is there, you know, anything you'd like to ask? And two of my questions came from that, but one that doesn't, I don't think really directly impacts Metaculous, sorry, doesn't directly impact Metaculous at all, but, uh, it feels like, I should ask in, in thanks to him. Uh, do you support legalizing real money markets? Do I support legalizing real money prediction markets? Yeah. Yeah, I think if I would support uh, – Let me. that's an interesting question because I've never actually thought about being in the deciding role in that. Um, yeah, I think I would support it. I would like to see prediction markets that were actual markets in the same sense as current commodities futures markets say, where there are where there are actually regulations that protect people in various ways um, and and make it kind of a clean financial system. So mm-hmm. so one thing that worries me a bit is you know when I see cryptocurrency trading markets or uh, think about upcoming futures markets or, or prediction markets. Um, you know, there's a lot of shenanigans that happen in financial markets because when people are incentivized to just make money and there's a set of rules, they will push those rules in every way that they can. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of the things that have happened in equities trading over decades you know, all kinds of shenanigans in uh, from all kinds of games that are played, insider information games, um, high frequency trading, pump and dump games. There's all kinds of stuff that people have come up with. And we've slowly but surely built up systems so that we feel like there's a fairly well tended, like just system for trading in in the world equity markets and futures markets. And I think that's a great thing and has done a lot of good economically. And I'm a little bit worried that building sort of shadow markets that don't have any of those features um, and are basically built to kind of avoid those sorts of institutions mm. um, is going to have all those things happen again. So so I really I like prediction markets uh, for certain things. I'm a little bit worried about prediction markets that are being generated, you know, on the blockchain and so on, specifically to avoid um, people kind of looking too careful or, or regulating what's actually happening in the trading uh, platforms. Okay. So yes and no. So so I <laughs> I would like to have them. I think it would be great if there were more prediction markets. Um, I. I do think, though, that we have to be careful about how it's done. Uh, otherwise, they're they're just going to turn into kind of gambling systems where lots of people are going to lose lots of money. Okay. 
All right. Well, yep. thank you for joining us and uh, keep us updated if you do go the whole venture capital fund or this launches in some other major new direction. Will do. Yeah. And uh, and I'll look forward to, to hearing some more interesting podcasts from you guys as well in the future. Oh, great. And oh, before we go, oh, is it metaculous.com? Yes. Okay. Uh, for the listeners, that's M-E-T-A-C-U-L-U-S.com. And we'll have links, of course, in the post. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yes, here's Stephen's excuse for why he wasn't here. Exclusive only for Patreon supporters. I think it's a good excuse. Yeah. Should we jump in? All right, let's do it. Okay. Oh, and before we forget, also got to thank Kyle, sound engineer. I did the finger guns. <laughs> you couldn't see him. He's, uh, he's puts up with a lot of tight deadlines from us sometimes. Especially the last couple months have been pretty hectic. So Kyle's right. been uh, kicking tons of ass for us and it makes a huge difference. Yeah. This one's about to go to him with a four day turnaround. So not a lot of time. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but we'll, we'll get back on track. I'll be moved in next week and then things will settle down. So yeah. Should we go on to the listener feedback? I'm down. Let's do it. On the getting schooled episode, not without incident says... I think education is a really important topic, but I worry that some of the criticisms of education were based on an overgeneralization of personal experience. <clears throat> the idea that high school is a miserable time for everyone and would be so much happier in apprenticeships is wrong on two fronts. First, lots of people love high school. The nicest way to put this is that most people in the rationalist community aren't the type of person who has the best time in high school. <laughs> Second, adolescence can be pretty miserable in a lot of ways, and that's not high school's fault. Romeo and Juliet weren't in high school, but it didn't go great for them. Um, they were idiots. Yes, they were. <laughs> but I love him. <laughs> I, God. But the rest of that point stands. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous the way humanity has made it into like the greatest romantic love story, you know, when it was really a story about two teenagers being idiots. Like, don't don't be like these guys. Yeah, they didn't have it figured out. Uh, I, I think a lot of that's true, but I'm wondering if, like, it's school's fault that adolescence sucks. Because a large part of why, I, like, the not being at school part was pretty good mm -hmm. for, for large parts of it for many people, right? Mm -hmm. It was being there surrounded by bullies and dicks and stupid, like, requirements and homework and teachers that, like, made everything suck. And just being trapped and bored for hours on end sometimes. Yeah. That's pretty damn horrible, too. And, like... I'm at this place now with like my professional life where I'm surrounded by people who are way smarter than I am. Mm -hmm. I've, I've never been like a genius, but I've, I, I was really bored in school. Like my cousin's going through the same thing. She's 17 and she's like, she, especially earlier, she had like disciplinary problems because she'd get bored and goof, or, goof off and that distracts the, the kids who are learning at like their full learning speed. Mm -hmm. But she's finished and, and bored, you know, a third of the way through the class. So, um, I mean, there's not an obvious way to fix that. That's not crazy expensive and you know, really hard to implement. So I think like it, it can be school's fault, but not like the site where we blame the schools. It's just like, yes, you guys are, it's happening because of this, but it's not your, it's not like you're to blame. Right. Yeah. I, I just think more than anything else, school shouldn't be mandatory. It shouldn't be basically the prison that, that it's being made. If, if you didn't have to go to school, it'd probably be a lot better. I, I wonder about that. Like, I might have quit because I got bored. Like, I guess it depends on how much cultural pressure there still was. Like, mm -hmm. I knew kids who dropped out. It's mm -hmm. not mandatory. Like, no one goes to prison. You can you can not graduate. Um, what happens when you don't go to school? Because don't, don't you actually get in trouble some way? I mean, I guess you wouldn't go to prison, obviously, but... I'm trying to think of the people that I knew. One, 
left for like a year and then did like some bullshit homeschooling program that was all like legit how old is the earth 7,000 years old oh, stuff shit. it was insane he showed me his schoolwork like yeah. but apparently it was the cheapest online one that they could do and it was just to get him some you know certification high school diploma yeah. um but obviously not in education <laughs> um and then the other guy we had a bit of a falling out they actually had the same name i think he eventually got some sort of a certification like a ged or something mm-hmm. um but i just remember i used to stop going after junior year of high school and I mean, his parents didn't care, so they didn't like, you know, what's the non-legal equivalent of press charges, like make him go. <laughs> right. um, but I can tell you that it didn't work out great for that guy, but he was also the kind of guy who didn't want to go to school. So it's hard to say. That's I a was, really small sample size. I was pretty sure that if your kids don't go to school, the parents are punished in some way. Fines or something. We'll have to look into that. I don't know if that's true, because I mean, we've got homeless kids. Yeah. So I the, the can't system imagine. Is pretty stupid. <laughs> I, the, it sounds perfectly plausible that the system's that stupid, but I <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Uh, if anyone knows the laws in the U.S. about that and wants to educate us because we're too lazy to Google it, that'd be interesting. <laughs> we we can always Google it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, while Enosh is googling, actually, I'm going to read a comment that um, uh, Eddie wrote into Bayesian Conspiracy Podcast at Gmail dot com and said, "Wonderful episode. Audrey is great and passionate and reminiscent of my favorite teachers and friends who went to, who went into education. I found myself agreeing with basically everything that she said." Oh, so okay. you can pass that on to Audrey. Cool. Um, and then they pointed out that the mistake between CDC and FDA and stuff. Um, but I just liked the positive feedback. Apparently, other people had had good experiences. I mentioned in high school I had great teachers. Yeah. Well, I mean, I loved the learning part of high school. I I also had really good teachers in most subjects. And in others, I didn't. But the ones that were I had good teachers were amazing. It was all the stuff outside of class that was awful. Maybe I'm, I'm having two biases to think about there. One was that my high school experience was so much better than my junior high school experience. Mm-hmm. So like looking back, it was a lot better than junior high. But it was not, I wasn't happy. But I, I think I just like I'm comparing those two schooling periods. But also I remember like being constantly full of anxiety and like, you know, like to the point like where my stomach is upset all the time. I'm sort of just remembering that right now. You're right. Apparently a lot of high school sucked. But I had good <laughs> teachers. So, <laughs> I had several good teachers anyway. Some of them sucked too, but that's just how it goes. Yeah. Uh, apparently, yes, your parents can go to jail. Whoa. Yeah. They, uh, they wow. Uh, in California, parents are found guilty of a misdemeanor and can be fined up to $2,000 sent to jail for a year or both. How was, I mean, okay. So California is also the state, I think, where if your kid walks to the park unattended, you can be fined for negligence and like, you know, as a bad parent. But it looks like in just about every state you can, you know, get a fine if you don't go to school. Um, And if you, you know, if you get enough fines that you don't pay, they generally come and take you to jail. Well, that surprises me sort of. I wouldn't, I guess I, like I said, I sort of guessed that it could be that crazy, but I'm bummed to hear that it is. (laughs) I mean... Who, who put this through thinking, you know what will show them? You know what will show those kids who aren't going to school? Not having parents. That'll teach them their lesson. <laughs> yeah. Then who's, like what? Then they're just a ward of the state and someone that works for the, works for the city is going to drive them to school? That's I fucking ridiculous. Dude, that'd be, that'd be a real dick way to get back at your parents if you're upset. Just don't go to school a lot until they get fined. Did you ever see that episode of South Park where they threaten or they call what child protective services and all their parents oh my god and say that they were like being molested <laughs> and then it's like children of the corn where like the kids just run the town cool and it was have you seen that one no oh, it's, no it's ridiculous i can't remember what the name of the episode is it's one of the older ones um 
but it's yeah there's like they they break into like factioning tribes and like the kid this the whole town is just children and like this couple their car breaks down and they're like trying to get it fixed and it's just like butters there and like his little overalls trying to work on it and it was uh yeah why doesn't that happen that's mm-hmm. all right i'm clearly tired that's hilarious though hilarious and super disheartening yeah yeah probably doesn't happen that often probably not i don't know i mean the other thing too is like someone's gonna have to be willing to you know take your the state parents is gonna, to jail yeah and go yeah. all the way through with this and at some point they're gonna like fuck it the parents don't care the kid doesn't want to go you know yeah. if he goes or he or she goes they're gonna just make a mess anyway and you know ruin that for everybody so right um yeah it's hard to see whose interest that serves they'll get up there and say the kids but it doesn't serve their doesn't serve that child's interest if they don't want to go there and doesn't serve the other children if that child doesn't want to go there and they're going to sit there and scream the whole time yeah it's like sure i'll go to school and spend the entire time in in school suspension fuck you guys yeah i don't know that's weird and then and obviously people can't hire anyone who's supposed to be at school because then they're um um contributing it was it contributing a truancy and they they're they're what complicit in truancy i guess if they if they hire someone uh, oh, like a teacher who works at the school to come to their kid? No, no, no. If uh, like the kid wants to, I don't know, go out, make a buck or two oh, during the day. Sure. If someone hires a kid that they know is supposed to be in school, then they would be contributing to that truancy. I don't want to hit this point like too long, but I was curious. So, like when you said they shouldn't, it shouldn't be mandatory, shouldn't or they should have a choice. The parents should have a choice whether their kids go to school, or the kid should have a choice whether it goes to school. Or both. I mean, by the time you get into your late teens, it sort of becomes both anyway. At that point, there's lots of times kids have power struggles with their parents, sure. right? Yeah, sure. Especially like, you know, when you're 16, 17 and you're like in your last year of high school and you've got a car and yeah. you're driving yourself to school, like your parents won't know if you're going to school or not. Right. You could leave the city all day. Um, <laughs> Once you're large enough that people have a hard time physically <laughs> forcing you to go someplace, that's when you have some negotiating power. So like, I'd feel bad. If there wasn't some mandatory education required, and you're saying mandatory schooling, not education, I'm conflating the two. My bad. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it should be a crime to like you know not teach your kids how to read one way or another, right? Yeah. If they're capable of learning how to read. Um, but yeah, I guess I could see it being a mess. I don't know. I don't know. Should that be a crime? I would. Yeah, I'm okay. kind of prepared to. to to stick that out. Like I mean, I'm willing to say that it should be a crime not to get vaccinated because that, you know, is direct impact on the health of everyone around you. But reading, I mean, a society is much better off when everyone's literate. Well, even just like, I mean, basic education stuff, you know, yeah. basic arithmetic, knowing the alphabet, that sort of shit. Like, I mean, uh, it doesn't it doesn't harm society if you don't get your child medical treatment when it has a cold or appendicitis mm-hmm. and it dies that's like your fault you should be charged for that yeah. if your kid comes out into the world and is you know completely useless to you know themselves and everybody else cuz right. that's a huge burden on society yeah and i can right. i can rephrase that and not make it so bad on the kid but like it's not a kid's fault yeah they yeah. just they they can't contribute they can't actualize anywhere cuz there's not much to do I mean, if, even if you can't like read an instruction manual to like work on something, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm prepared to say that if the, if the parents don't make that happen, that it's their fault and that should be a problem. I'm good with that. Yeah. yeah. Should That's, be some minimum level of education required. Yeah. Some basic literacy and numeracy. But I think... Um, and there should be free schools available to help facilitate that. Yeah. But, I should read Kaplan's case against education. I think he draws a... He's, he's very important about drawing the distinction between education and schooling. Mm. And... When he says that there's too much education, I think there's I think there are points at least where uh, 
this V, that article that he, that uh, he wrote was um, saying that there was one sentence by Kaplan where he said that people are too ed- overeducated, but he meant like overschooled, mm-hmm. not like they learn too much. That's not a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. The system as it is now isn't great, but it also serves the purpose, like you know, the the Hansonian lens of like, how are you going to sit at your desk and be you know shut up and do your job if you haven't had that drilled into you for fifteen years? Yeah. So. And it provides some unifying culture that helps keep the country somewhat together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the rosy picture of history you get in you know the the ten years that you're taking U.S. history through school. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think that the the I think they're probably downplaying like the level of like blatant uh, propaganda stuff that they're giving kids. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly than they were like at my parents' age. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents both went to school here uh, in or here in the U.S. Uh, when they were school aged, and I mean there was a lot of like you know red scare and you know this like a lot of like you know big patriotism stuff. Way more than just like getting up and doing the pledge of allegiance every day. Um, did they make you do that? By the way, they did, but uh, I had a religious exemption since ah. I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, and you can't pledge allegiance to anything but God or something, right? Yeah. 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 It yep. was every, at the beginning of every school year, my parents had to go in, meet with the teachers, explain, you know, these are our religious beliefs. And then I sat while everyone else stood up and pledged allegiance. Nice. So, yeah. I was, I was taught very early to be rebellious and not give fucks. <laughs> it's funny how you can do that in a religious context. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, every now and then I was just talking with one of my uh, writer friends and she was like, I wrote this one story which was really violent and and had a pro-choice message near the end and I, uh, I'm, I have it out under a pseudonym because I live down in Texas and all my neighbors would judge me and I'm like, so fucking let them judge you. Bring it on, motherfuckers. And I, I have come to realize that people are much less likely to invite that sort of controversy than I usually am and I... Th- the, the religious upbringing was probably at least a part of it. They managed to get their culture into me regardless. <laughs> I mean, there are good things you took from it. Yeah. Like the ability to say no to authority. That's, I think, super valuable. Yeah. I still have the evangelistic instinct, even though that is, in my opinion, probably a bad thing. Because no one likes being evangelized to. And yet here we are. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, we're just having a chat between friends. It's not yeah. our fault if some someone else is listening in on it. Some poor sap downloads and is converted. <laughs> Um, did you read this, uh, this long email or not long, but a couple paragraphs, um, about your updated beliefs on marriage? Uh, I did, but this was like two and a half months ago. So refresh me on it. David wrote in to say, hello, fellow Bayesians. I want to comment on Inuyasha's updated beliefs about marriage in the interest of full disclosure. Oh, he's talking about how he doesn't go to Reddit. That's fine. Um, my problem with marriage as homemaker protection contract is that I worry that this view neglects the fun theoretic benefits of marriage. I grant that in the modern world, there are a few, um, sorry, I'm reading over the microphone, it's hard. Hmm. Um, I grant that in the modern world, there are a few and shrinking practical benefits to marriage, and I also grant that a lot of the legal and monetary benefits to marriage are bullshit, but I'd argue that in a world where I raise three kids is a valid resume fodder, and there were no legal social pressures to marry or stay married, people would still like to get married, and some would still, excuse me, some would likely stay married for life because of a big ceremony where all your friends gather and watch two souls become one, etc., etc. And then following through on those vows is an enjoyable experience. Did I read that in a way that you could understand? Yeah. Um, saying that there are, uh, saying, quote, 
there are few to no practical benefits to this that aren't bullshit stuff society forces on us, therefore we sh- it shouldn't exist, end quote, is too similar to Warhammer 40K's imperial truth. <laughs> Basically, the sequence is about the fun theory, but also why the, <laughs> why the 40K universe sucks. Well, there's a lot of reasons why the 40k universe sucks <laughs> i completely respect your personal choice to reject marriage because of your past experiences but painting with a broad brush to include the whole institution and all those who partake seems to be a bit too spock or emperor of mankind and not enough jeffrey Sy or rationalist harry i could see a reasonable alternative such as the hand binding five-year marriages working out a lot better than the current system and fulfilling the same fun theoretic role as marriage but conceptually or excuse me but conceptualizing marriage as a purely practical contract with no value as a ritual seems ill-advised. Yeah, I guess I guess that's fair. Uh, some people do enjoy ritual a lot um, and would like to go through that ritual. And, you know, there, there's a saying, your kink is not my kink, but that's okay. And if that is someone's kink, then they are entirely free to indulge in it. But, you know, uh, think about some of the legal things that you are that you are um, signing up for when you, when you indulge this kink, uh, there, you know, there's, there's impregnation kinks too. But, uh, if you do that now you're stuck with a kid. So <laughs> there, there are some things to think through and, uh, uh, there's, there's some really good rituals out there and sure it can definitely lead to a quality of life increase. If that is something that you want in your life, uh, just think it through. And I, I honestly like a five year, con repeating contract that's so much a better idea in my opinion i like how you brought it to like a kink and it's like <laughs> if that's the weird thing that gets you off go for it like you know all right um it's i mean that's not the <laughs> nicest way to putting it kinks are very important and make life better you know sure. and it, is ritual like a kink i would kind of think ritual is i think we spent two hours and i still don't really know what a ritual is yeah no. i sucked at it and someone wrote in that you should have tabooed ritual and they're absolutely okay. right and okay. i'm trying to be better about that going forward okay. um about tabooing confusing words, which is to say, can we have this conversation without using that word and just talk about the actual thing? So what actually thing is it? It's a, uh, I wanted something that encompasses like a, what or that if it encompasses brushing your teeth and getting married, I don't think that's a useful word. Right. Yeah. So like, um, I don't know, something that you, that is above and beyond for the purpose of ceremony, but that sounds like another tabooable word. Um, I guess in this case, the closest thing would be a a large group event with emotional meaning to commemorate milestones as they happen. Yeah, or, no one or life changes teeth, as so. they happen. Yeah, that could be a good good version. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Cannonball Jenkins brought up a bunch of examples about like concerts and stuff, maybe being similar. And no one's watching your like your personal growth or something, but you're all sharing in that moment. Maybe is what something that he would say. Yeah, um, and that does rule up brushing my meanings. teeth. So that's nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can dig it. Um, I think I had another thing to say about how you were. How I was wording my particular answer. No, I thought it was funny, but I was going to say something else. Um, that's what you're saying. And I, I like the idea. I have a friend who did the five year hand wrap thing. I think that's kind of fun. Cool. Um, you know, I think, I think you could kind of distill your argument down into like a hard version and a soft version. Mm-hmm. And I think the soft version is very easily palatable, which is like, be aware that this is not just like a fun thing you're doing with, with somebody that you love and that your family is invited to this big party. Yeah. It's a binding contract that has a, you know, a huge ledger of shit that you didn't know was in it probably. Yeah. Um, and more than anything else, I want to divorce the idea. Haha, divorce. I want to divorce the idea that uh, love and marriage are um, commingled. So, sure. In any way that uh, 
you can love someone and not get married and you can marry someone and not love them. And those things shouldn't be conflated. I'm really, really annoyed by the fact that society has as a default, if you love someone, you marry them. And if you didn't marry them, then you don't really love them. Yeah. Same here. That would be my my number one thing that I would like to burn down out of or remove from, from the whole marriage shenanigans. Yeah. It it does seem weird that because then people wouldn't feel nearly as much pressure. They would get married if they wanted the legal things or the, the ritual enjoyment of, of that particular thing. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, when I got married, it was because, well, I love this person, right? Yeah. That should be why people do it. I mm-hmm. totally agree. Not because, well, my friends and family won't think I really love this person if I don't do this. Well, no, but, like, but it was that was a stupid reason for me to get married. No, that's what I'm saying. Well, no, you did it because you love the person you said. Yeah, and yeah, I think so, that's a stupid reason to get married. You should get married <laughs> if you want uh, the, the legal things that it brings and or the if you're just into that sort of ritual i guess also would be another reason but if you love someone that should not make compel you to marry them because love and marriage have nothing to do with each other i see yeah i miss i read too much of what you're saying i i got that like it's also the opposite of what you normally hear from everywhere normally people say oh yeah that's the only reason you should marry someone is if you marry them i'm like no the only reason you should marry them is if you want these particular legal things to suddenly be enforced in your life hmm Love I think you're right because that you do separate from that. I immediately drew the other connection, and I think I need some more deep programming to totally get where you come. No, no, I, I think that that's important. Um, yeah, I was thinking more like uh, if it's the kind of thing that like you want and will make you and your partner happy, then it's like yeah, go for it. But mm-hmm. know that know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can dig it. Okay, cool. Did we have any other feedback, or is that it for today? Um, we only did two, didn't we? We can probably find one more. I think we did three. Yeah, you're right. One, one was just feedback. One, it wasn't really, we didn't talk about it much. Let me see here. One was someone agreeing with Audrey, who I was arguing against. I see how it is. My listeners turning on me. I liked her a lot too. I thought that, I mean, I, if, if her schooling, the way that she schools educates oh, yeah. is, half as, awesome. is half as legit as what she's putting off, mm-hmm. then that sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. I think everybody who goes there is super lucky and benefits a lot. I do think that Either the, the institution has changed a lot in the last decade, which I don't think it has because I know people are still in school and they're super bored, like my cousin. Um, but it could just be that like Cheyenne isn't caught up with this fun school that she, she teaches at. But I think that she was being too... Um, I think she's generalizing too much from... like I think her, her school and the way that her education system, her education system does it is... Un- uh, unusual, to yeah, say the least. It's, not, it's an outlier, and she's generalizing from that. Yeah. Um, it, when that stops being an outlier, that sounds really cool. When I asked, are there any teachers I know who would like to come on and talk about this subject? And she replied, I I told her, I think you're probably the worst teacher that I know for this because you have the most unusual school. But she was also the one who was most willing to defend schooling, probably because, you know, of of the fact that her school is pretty, pretty awesome. The other couple teachers I knew were like, "Mm, no, I don't want to I don't want to go on that podcast. Yeah, I think I mean, the the other I mean, I think the obvious uh, bar there is that for somebody coming on who doesn't like the school that they work at, but they're, they wanted to teach because of, you know, like the ambition of like, it is a really cool thing. I was attracted to the idea too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I talked to teachers in college who are like, you know, I can't teach whatever I want because they just hand me a syllabus and it's fucking stupid. And I'm going to do my best to actually teach you guys something, but we've got to pass these tests that I don't get to write. So like, um, that's, that doesn't sound fun. Yeah. I could totally dig more of like a tutoring thing or a private school thing if I was ever to do that. Um, but currently that's on the track I'm on. So going way back to not without incidents comment. Um, he also mentioned that they had to create a, a 
uh, high school slash military academy to uh, to put Greek teenage boys in because they were causing so much trouble, which first of all, I don't think says good things about school if you're basically using it to as <laughs> as a holding place for your troublemakers. But um, it, I, I recall, was it Marcus Aurelius? Yes, I believe it was Marcus Aurelius, one of the, the Roman emperors uh, said that one of the best things that happened in his life was he was not sent to the normal schooling that everyone else in Rome gets and that preserved his actual joy of learning and didn't destroy, you know, his childhood. <laughs> so, so schooling has been kind of shitty for a long time. I get the feeling. Yeah. I mean, I imagine back then too, there was probably similar problems, but oh my God. probably more. Do you want to hear about some of the shit they did in Rome? So much they would make people memorize the alphabet, like the forms, the letters, what they look like before they knew what they were or what they were good for. Like you, you just have to remember, remember that this is an A, this is the shapes an A consists of, and you don't know that it's a letter in a word or anything. It's only after you have everything memorized that then they start telling you, okay, this makes this sound and this is combined with other words. And it's like, why am I just randomly memorizing stupid shapes without any way to connect them or use them in the real world? And I sort of doubt that they did any like, it, like empiricistic or empiric empiricist observations of like this was the optimal way to teach reading. <laughs> oh no, God, no! This is probably just like. And the kids were beat if they didn't get it fast enough, and it was just it was a, a one of those grueling memorized things that do not matter to you at all sort of things. That's something we didn't even touch on, and I'm sure Audrey would probably agree, I'm guessing, but like uh, corporal punishment was super popular just a few decades ago, mm -hmm. and it's mostly gone now, but not entirely. I'm not sure if it's gone out of every public school or not. It might be, um, but it used to be, you know, you just, you get hit, sometimes super fucking hard, mm -hmm. and uh, my dad told me one, you know, like where they, they would bring the kid up to the front of the class and paddle them, yeah. and you know, this he's not that old. He's in his 50s, so, you know, 30-ish years ago, they were, yeah. wait, 40-ish years ago? They're pulling kids up to, you know, hit them really hard in front of their in front of their classmates, which like as far as the uh, domestication thing <laughs> that that certainly adds a lot of credence to that hypothesis for why schooling is the way it is. I am um, very much against uh, violence, physical violence, so I would not come out in favor of that in any way. But there is a problem that a lot of ways right now schools don't have credible ways to, I, I believe, I was put, maybe it was even on Scott Alexander's blog. Someone said though that uh, schools don't have a credible way to disin it disincentivize bad behavior. Cause yeah, suspension is like, cool, I'll go play video games for three days. Fuck you. Right. Um, and lots of times the teacher can't suspend someone because then all the stats look worse. You can't even send them to the principal's office because then everyone would be in the principal's office and the principal doesn't give that many fucks and they just, what can they do? Yell at the kid and tell him to shut up? If the kid doesn't shut up, then what? Yeah, I don't remember suspension ever being that big of a deal. I was in the principal offices, as in the principal's office a lot in in elementary and junior high school. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I was only suspended once in elementary school, or I was out out of school suspended, and that was a time where like, oh, you know, I was like bullies, and she was like, you know, just hit him back or whatever, and it was like finally one of the things. Like, no one was really seriously hurt. This was like one of like the least violent altercations, mm -hmm. but somehow we both got suspended for it, and. I was like, cool, you play video games all day. This is totally fine. I totally support this. Um, but, you know, and she was a stay-at-home mom at the time. She didn't start working until I was most of the way through junior high or something. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, if both my parents worked, then, like, uh, out-of-school suspension is just a huge bonus. Yeah. And, like, oh, I have to catch up on my classwork? Oh, no. 
Um, and then in school with Benchin, you just hang out and read. Mm. I bet they take your phones now. I didn't have a smartphone back then, but mm. I remember one day in ISS in school suspension, I was somewhat intimately familiar with it, so I needed a shorter uh, moniker for it. Um, <laughs> but I read the entirety of the Order of Phoenix in one day because oh, I had nothing else to do. And I think it was one of my like rereads. I kind of you know was able to skim through parts of it. Yeah. But I'm like, all right, cool. I reread this whole fucking book. Can I go now? <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's not a very strong disincentivizer. But I guess I don't know what else would be because what do kids care about that they can take from them? Like the teacher. Oh, well, my dad was pretty good at taking away things I cared about. Your dad was, but your yeah. teachers couldn't. No, right? your teachers can't. So, um, yeah, I mean, your parents have control over everything that you have. So, yeah. um, you know, I don't know what kids like video games, phones, and computers and stuff. Yeah. So, like, and TVs. I mean, your parents could take all that, but your teacher, I think. I'm not sure if there, there's probably laws about it now, but smartphones were just coming out when I was getting through high school. So there wasn't anything at the time. Like they would try and take phones and it was like questionable whether or not they could. Um, if you're like cheating on a test, they'll take it. But like if you're just on it, there was, I'm not sure if there's much they could do. There probably is now. But I mean, they probably have to give it back at the end of the class, maybe at the end of the day. I'm not sure how it works. Were kids, do kids bust out smartphones while they're taking a test? I'm sure they do. It's okay. That seems a bit shady. Oh, I'm <laughs> just sure that looking up the answers. Kids don't care about passing the tests because they know it, right? They want to not fail because they're told that like if you fail, your world will end and you'll, you know, yeah, you'll just yeah. starve to death in the streets. I'm so. just, I'd be surprised that a teacher wouldn't be, you know, sitting around watching. Oh, they sure do. That, they probably get oh, caught. They do. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I guess, yeah, kids have been cheating since the beginning of time and yeah. teachers have been trying to stop it since the beginning of time. All right. I saw a great picture on Reddit where like, so the Nintendo switch has a little stand on the back of it, like on the little portable screen mm. and you can detach the remotes and play with them independently. They don't have to be touching each other or the console. Right. And there was a kid in a hoodie leaning back and his backpack was a jar and he had the switch <laughs> standing up in it and his hands in his hoodie pockets playing like Mario. <laughs> and the guy awesome. behind him took a picture of like, look at this kid. He's sitting in class, but he's playing super Mario Odyssey. It was awesome. Neat. Um, so yeah, kids get creative. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you can't I, again. I don't think hitting kids is the solution either, but what else could you do? Yeah. Probably not much. I don't know. We haven't thought about it for five minutes. Yeah. I mean, if school wasn't mandatory, you could say get the fuck out of here. And eventually they do. Mm-hmm. Some kids get, get expelled. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what the recourse is for the parents at that point. There's probably some loophole for if your kid was too much of a nonconformist. I think then you have to uh, educate them at home. Yeah. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Well, that's super happy, exciting stuff. <laughs> oh, we have time um, if you want to do a rationally speaking pick. I know you have a, of a ledger to get through. Yes, I do have one. In fact, that was one of the big things that I want to do here. You said that you didn't want to call them uh, rationally speaking picks because that's too much stealing off Julie Galef. It's explicitly stealing off of Julie Galef. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Did you uh, want to call them like rat chat? I think that's fun. Okay, yeah. like rationalist chat about random shit. While you're digging it up, there was something I saw on Reddit, and I can try and dig it up if we want the link, but it was just a, um, it was some guy who taught his daughters, like, he, he, he was, like, trying to test the hypothesis that if he, like, ingrained this into a kid enough, they could be a master of anything. Oh, the chess dude? The, the chess thing. And I think the two of his three daughters came out to be, like, world champions, or mm-hmm. at least world, like, champion competitors. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting because my sister's pregnant. She should be giving birth any minute now. And uh, any minute as in any day. Um, but uh, it was fun to think about because I guess it depends on the subject. And so I read through all the comments. I really do. Like, I'll, I'll skim them, but I read through a lot of them because it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, all he showed really in this small sample is that you can teach something like chess that's, you know, learnable by a child and have them compete with each other for 15 years and get awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but wh- whether or not that would work for something like, I don't know, economics or something is probably debatable. Yeah. But it is kind of fun to think that, I think... Um, and both that guy and his wife were geniuses already, so their kids were probably going to be geniuses too. Right. Uh, I think John Stuart Mill had a very atypical education to the point where like, he had like a mental breakdown or something oh, in his shit. late teens, or early 20s. Um, but he was one of those, you know, like, I think the... Uh, I've heard I've heard at least once or twice, and this is obviously hyperbole, but like he was the last person in the world to know everything there was to know. Because oh. um, back then there was less to know, and right. it was I mean he didn't know obviously everything. He didn't know all the languages, but he knew a lot. And he I think it was fair to say that he was an auto an auto or excuse me not an autodidact a um an eclectic expert in a lot of subjects. Right. Uh, but when the human domain of knowledge is smaller, that's easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of it I think was due to his insane education as a kid. So right. yeah. All right, what do you got? I have, uh, this is by Bound Up over at, I believe this was at Lesser Wrong back in the day, which will make it at Less Wrong now since Lesser Wrong got incorporated into Less Wrong. Or was it the other way around? Lesser Le- Wrong got put back into Less Wrong. Because people hated the name? I think it was always originally meant as like a startup to see if it'll work and if it does work, we'll use it to revitalize less wrong cool yeah yeah i didn't like lesser wrong anyway and i excuse me yeah. i liked the i liked what it did mm-hmm. i liked what it was doing but i hated the name yeah less wrong makes sense what yes. does lesser wrong even mean it's you know the next iteration of less wrong and the next one will be less as strong so. and I, I think there's already a blog there's definitely probably a blog with this name but like the obvious one out of trust is like more right there is come on <laughs> the more right one is uh, about new is mainly new reactionaries and other right-leaning people oh shoot so it's a double pun yeah, yeah. all right and I guess lesser wrong also kind of a pun about you must choose the lesser wrong. When oh, okay. Confronted with two evils. That makes okay. I can dig that. Yeah. Uh, but this is the title of this post is maps versus buttons semicolon nerds versus normies, and is a way of thinking about the other half of the population, which I found interesting, and I think I suspect is not charitable enough. It feels mean is basically what I'm trying to say. Who are the two halves of the population? Nerds and normies. I mean, can you expand on that? Uh, like rationalists and everyone else? Yeah, well, people, in fact, let me just cover the actual thing where uh, uh, this is discovered or this is discussed. Uh, they said that they were having a conversation with a friend and they noticed some inconsistencies with the friend's beliefs of what they were saying. And they were like, dude, you're, the two things you say totally contradict each other. And the friend was like, Oh, okay. I see. All right. Thanks. Uh, and they were like, okay, cool. I helped clear up something in, in their, their beliefs and their map of the world. This is awesome. But then sometime later they were talking with them and they still had those two contradictory beliefs and they put it out again. And it was like, Oh, okay. Thanks. Awesome. And then sometime later they talked to them again. They still had those beliefs. And he was like, what the hell is going on? And he talked with his friend for a bit and he says that got the, the from his friend's point of view. What happened was that uh, they were having a discussion and his friend showed respect to him uh, by asking about his opinion. And at some point he pointed out kind of like a pedantic schoolboy that there was some sort of inconsistency, uh, which is, you know, whatever, some sort of weird logical rule. And so he's like, oh, okay, thanks. And, uh, the, and then I showed respect for him by saying thank you for pointing that out to me and everyone everything seemed to be well resolved so they just 
went along on, on their, when their relationship and, and he, he, the main purpose of the conversation seemed to be about the relationship between the two of them, as opposed to their relationship with knowledge about the world. And so that was what he updated as opposed to any belief about the world. Uh, and he says he makes the analogy between maps and, uh, maps and buttons because when someone asks him and I'm assuming you or most rationalists what a belief what their beliefs on a subject are we consult our mental map of the world right and of ourselves and we produce on the fly a description of what that map says um, this produces he says conceptually consistent answers as consistent as the map is which in most people's cases is or most of our cases is very consistent because we like to keep our maps consistent. Um, and also the answers are often a bit clunky and unwieldy since they are being constructed on the fly. Now the other people, the normies, as he calls them are not making maps of the world in their head. They aren't constructing these beliefs. Uh, they're more like a big wall of buttons. You push a button and a slip of paper comes out. And the button you push is the question you ask them, and the slip of paper that comes out is the the opinion that they have on that, uh, which which has been oftentimes granted to them by their tribe or people that they respect. And he said the um, the their effort goes into not making their maps as consistent and as accurate with the world as they observe it as possible, but on refining what's on the slips of paper and uh, refining that based on the status of the person that they're talking to and their reaction. And there's no relationship between any one button and that corresponding paper and another button and its corresponding paper. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And so he, he claims that in a ver- very real sense, normal people don't have beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> if we're talking about things where they don't need to be factually right to prosper, they don't have real beliefs at all uh but they sustain a convincing illusion of having beliefs because when they say what's your belief on gender equality they produce a nice shiny answer that sounds like it's saying something um and the the main thing is that these response beliefs on papers are there in an attempt to signal which groups you owe fealty to uh what what who's your in group who's the out group and uh, it, it's a social reality as opposed to corresponding in any way to physical reality. So uh, nerds are constantly embarrassing themselves according to social rules because they're, you know, betraying their allies or, or not properly signaling the correct adherence to the correct ideas in order to have some sort of status. And nerds think that uh, normal people are embarrassing themselves because they don't have any sort of consistent beliefs or ideas worth listening to. And uh, that is the problem that nerds think of normal people as failed nerds, whereas normal people think of nerds as failed normal people. Well, that's sort of people think nerds are trying to signal and impress and are just being really shitty at it. (laughs) That's sort of disheartening. Mm -hmm. Um, That's interesting. I think you're right. It might be too disingenuous to say that, or like too, um, what was the word that you Uncharitable. Used? Uncharitable. Yeah. To say this is just a problem with normal people. Because yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure I have those too. Yeah. Um, but the difference is that like, if someone pointed out to me, hey, Steven, you said something different that doesn't match up, match up with what you said just now, mm-hmm. a week ago, I'd be like, oh shit, hold on, you're right. 
one of these doesn't make sense. I can't keep both of these and I won't repeat both of them again. Um, whereas apparently assuming this person's rendition is true, some people will just be like, cool. Yeah. And just power through and to come back up again later. I, we, I think we just talked about this a few days ago, the transracial stuff. There's also no reason people couldn't be transracial. And yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I, I drew it to the extreme that if you think people can be other animals, right. It would be insane to say, Oh, this person's a bird, but this person can't be black if their skin's white. Yeah. Um, Whereas most people would be like, yeah, I'm down with transgender people, but anyone who thinks that they're transracial can go eat a giant load of bowl. Did mm. now I can't say giant load of dicks because that seems kind of shitty to say a giant bowl of turds. How about that? There you go. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I mean the kickback to that, I think would be, you know, some something along the lines of cultural appropriation or like, you know, it's okay for you to say you're black, but you're not actually suffering with what they're suffering with. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely true. Mm-hmm. Um, that's there's certainly a problem that I wouldn't know how to tackle there. And I, 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 I realize I come from this lofty position where I can just say, oh yeah, everyone should just be, you know, take it easy and be nice to each other, mm-hmm. and then all our problems will go away. It sounds like super hippie, um, but that's because you know I'm not getting a lot of shit every day. Um, you know, I. I was going to see um, the Avengers a couple weekends ago, mm-hmm. and the newest one, Infinity War. Yeah, and I hear it's worth seeing, and I really got to go see it. Yeah, but first, you and I need to watch Ragnarok. Yes, I have heard that um, as well. And if you want to watch it together, I'm, I was going to pitch that later, but we should watch it together. Okay, we never actually watched a TV show or movie together. No, and I think you'd have fun with this. It's not your. It's not an every everyday superhero movie. Cool. Um, but uh, I went with maybe Sunday. I'm down. Okay. Oh, I'm a bit. Well, I'll figure something out. Okay. okay. Um, but uh, I went with five other people and one of them was black mm-hmm. and the girl taking or the, the older woman taking our tickets asked to like if he could step aside she, she could you know he could open his backpack <gasps> and but he was the first person to enter in my group with a backpack okay and i was like okay that's fine yeah and then um the person behind him goes in and she has a backpack the next guy has a backpack um someone else comes in the purse <laughs> and so i asked her yeah. after this guy you know she he just held it open and it's like a laptop and like, all right cool go ahead and i asked her i was like you know, he's, uh, this was like after everyone was, I don't want to make it like a scene with him right there, but I kind of was just hanging out waiting for the last person in our party to show up. And I was like, how did you ask him and not no one else? It's like, oh, I, you know, people check with backpacks, the bigger the backpack, the more I check. And I was like, both of their backpacks are twice the size of his like laptop bag. And she's like, oh, well, there's no real recipe. Um, (laughs) You know, there's, there's not like a a rule. There's, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, if someone's comes in wearing shades or if they, you know, whatever. Mm. And you know, the stuff if that someone comes in with darker skin. That's, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what fucking happened. Yeah. And it, I was like, you know, and this is like the mildest case of racial profiling out there. You know, he wasn't held up. He wasn't frisked, mm-hmm. but it was just like, you know, this was the dumbest fucking thing I'd ever seen. And you know, if you're, if you're profiling for like risky looking people, I mean, one of the guys that came in rode into the building on a skateboard and he was high as shit. And like, you know, I mean, uh, anyway, so I, I bring up that long digression to point out that uh, it's easy for me to say like, oh yeah, you know, if if, uh, if my white friend wants to go out there and say he's black when it's comfortable for him and we, when he gets whatever benefit he wants from saying that or if that's how he actually feels or something, mm-hmm. he's expressing a feeling that's different from like people across the street passing judgment on you. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think... I. So I can totally see the, re- the the reaction to that particular thing, even mm-hmm. if I think that in an ideal world nobody should give a shit. Right. And maybe our fr- maybe our friends who would say that is a problem, transracialism shouldn't be a thing right now. Maybe mm-hmm. they would concede that yes, in an ideal world, that's great. Okay. 
I assume. Maybe yeah. many of them wouldn't. They'd say in an ideal world, everyone lives in racially segregated boxes and white people are on the bottom. I don't know. But, yeah. um, well, I could, I could certainly see conceptually, theoretically, transracialism could totally be a thing. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, I guess there is also the thing where, like, I can just say that I'm a woman to get the discount or, you know. <laughs> can I tell you about a time I did that, too? No. Um, what did you do? So, so first of all, I'm, I'm sure someone's going to notice that, like, oh, Stephen just brought up, like, the mildest thing of, like, racial profiling and saying that he discovered race, you know, race problems. <laughs> and that's not what I'm saying. I'm bringing up the most recent incident that happened to me a couple of weeks ago or happened near me, rather. Mm. Um, so I was with a friend, like, a year ago. They wanted to stop by a pot shop. I was getting a ride home. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they were like, oh yeah, it's, it's women's Wednesdays, you know, women get 20% off. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, I wasn't going to buy anything, but I was like, oh. And I, I see the guy behind the guy, I was like, if I say I'm a woman, can I get 20% off? And he's like, oh, I don't really, you know, he, he kind of just like, oh, I don't know how to answer this question. <laughs> and he's like, I don't, I, don't, I don't think we can do that. And he just seemed really uncomfortable. And I thought yeah. about pushing it yeah. and just being like, no, no, no. I, you know, and, but I didn't want to be disingenuous and be a dick about it. Right. But it was funny because... Uh, like you'd said, you know, if there was if there was a time where you could do it once a month, you know, ladies night at the bar or something and get a dollar drink or something as opposed to nine dollar drink, then, you yeah. know, people would be taking advantage of it and would be taking it away from the people who like actually feel this way and want this accepted about them. Right. So right. it's a whole weird thing. It is. I don't have a good answer for this other than a couple of stupid stories. So, yeah. Okay, that that got digressed quite a bit. But yeah, he also said at the very bottom, uh, basically the same thing you said, that uh, I've spoken people, I've spoken as if people are in one camp or the other, but it's more of a spectrum. Uh, it might be more correct to say that people are on a spectrum of nerdy normal for each specific topic. For example, humans manage to be nerdy about politics and religion. Uh, they, and definitely a lot of people do. We, we tend to call them walks, you know, the people that are really nerdy about politics. Uh but people who are nerdy in some ways can turn into political animals and social thinkers when you bring up anything controversial, like what the best Star Wars movie is. <laughs> and a normal person might well become nerdy and actually try to learn how some things really work if they happen to be interested in a topic for some reason. And yeah, I, I think the nice thing about dichotomy type posts is that they can open your eyes to new ways of thinking about things. And you always have to put at the very bottom, by the way, this is not how the real world works. There's always spectrums and, you know, nebulous cases but this is just a way to think about things and start noticing stuff like like does this person actually have a real belief or or do they just are they pushing a button yeah that's an interesting way to think about it and am i just pushing a button and regurgitating something that i heard i was gonna say something like that that now we're gonna be at the point where we can ask our friends at our meetups and be like are you just pushing a button for this right now or is this your actual belief how does this tie into your network of other beliefs yeah yeah Um, do you actually think that transporters are murder or are you just pushing a button (laughs) and now people uh you know now the nerds will be armed with a new you know uh, rhetorical device where the normal people aren't going to read this post because they don't read posts like this. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just gonna we be like, can isolate ourselves <laughs> even further. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think our job here is complete. I think so. <laughs> Stephen, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for joining me. Thanks for letting us do this together. This was a lot of fun. Cool. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Hell I think yeah. this was kind of energetic and fun. Neat. You finally thanked the people for listening. I always appreciate them listening. Okay. Because I, I always say thanks, bye. And you're like, I ain't saying bye to people who aren't in the room. It feels weird to like sign off that way. But I, okay. I, I hope it's never been clear. Or I hope it's, it's never been misunderstood that like I don't appreciate the people like the show. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. sure they know you appreciate them. Oh, I thought Stephen hated us. Um, <laughs> what the fuck's he going there every other week to do this for? Yeah. He's just trying to have a private conversation <laughs> with Eniosh. <laughs> Eniosh records everything. <laughs> 
Oh, as a quick note, um, we do oftentimes reach out to, to people to get them on the podcast for interviews or whatever, but a few times we've had people reach out to us instead. Like, I did not know about Metaculus, but the Metaculus people contacted us and said, hey, this is some cool stuff you might be interested in, and we said, sure, come on the podcast. So if you also have anything cool like that that you want to talk about, we may be willing to talk with you. Just drop us a line. Yeah, by all means, that sounds great. Cool. Uh, and or if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes. Yeah, it takes it's really easy. Helps us get uh, more um, uh, higher in the search results. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's that. There's the um, email address, the Bayesian Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com, The subreddit r slash the Bayesian Conspiracy. You can chat with other people and accuse them of pushing buttons. Yes, and uh, I want I want that to be a thing. Um, and then uh, the website, BeijingConspiracyPodcast.com, right? Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we're on Patreon. That too, yeah. So hit us up by any of those avenues, and uh, thanks for listening. Cool, thanks. Bye. <laughs>